Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Michelle Catania. Michelle Catania is a marriage and family therapist who is licensed in the state of Connecticut. She was born and raised in San Diego, California, but has grown to love the seasonal changes in New England, where she lives with her family. She was a preschool teacher for over 15 years and has two children biologically and one child through special needs adoption. Her background includes a master's in marriage and family therapy from Southern Connecticut State University and a bachelor's in psychology with certification in elementary education from Franklin Pierce University. She has expertise in brain-based disorders, including ADHD, autism, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Michelle loves her job because she can share her passion for Christ and her love for families. And not only that, but we also glory in the tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Romans 5 verses 3 through 5. Today's guest on FASD Hope is my virtual friend, my (laughs) Facebook Insta friend, slash fellow mama bear warrior, slash advocate, slash wonderful mom of three and lovely person and a marriage and family therapist, Michelle Catania. Michelle, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So thank you for joining me today. I am so excited about our conversation. It's something that we've kind of touched upon previously, but we really, um, you and I were talking about how we feel that there's a connection between brain-based or neurobehavioral parenting, which we uh, both use with our children that have an FASD. And grace-based parenting, which in many circles is such an amazing parenting strategy, really just seeing grace and and using grace and letting the Lord lead you in, in your parenting. So I thought we would have that as our topic today because I feel like both parenting strategies overlap in many ways, and they're both gifts that we parents should be utilizing. So we're going to explore that. But before we do that, can you share a little bit about your journey into parenting, adoption, and FASD with our audience? Absolutely. So um, my husband and I had, you know, married, had two children, and thought we were done um, because we decided we were done. And we, you know, made it official um, surgically and we're all in this place of like, we know what, you know, we know what we're doing. And then about um, four years after my youngest, my youngest son had been born, um, I had been asking my husband, 
well, maybe even a little before that, I had been asking him for, you know, like every, we talked about adoption. He was like, no, I'm not ready. No, I'm not ready. So every once in a while, I'd throw it out there and I'd say, hey, so you thought any more about adoption? And he's like, no, no, I haven't. No, I'm not there. No, I'm not ready. And, you know, I kept asking and kept asking. And one time we went on a trip to, um, with the family, we had gone to a, um, a like an indoor water park and we had spent the night and we came back and the next day as I usually do I threw it out every once in a while I would be like um so you thought any more about adoption and he actually surprised me that time and was like yes actually I have and I think I want to and I think that's I think that would be a great idea for us, for our family and literally I had to pick my jaw up off the floor and within the next day he had um, we had, we had a list of agencies that we were going to look at and talk to and make decisions about, um, we had actually, were deciding between, um, Ethiopia and, um, domestic adoption two reasons because my oldest son at the time was, had some attachment, um, struggles. And we knew that we had looked, um, a little while earlier into a DCF kind of, um, adoption and fostering in that way. And we knew that that just couldn't fit the needs of my oldest son. Um, if something came into our life and then was taken out of our life, um, even if he didn't like it, like we had a dog that we needed to rehome um, because he was aggressive and hurting neighbors. And he, I mean, it broke him. And we knew that a child would be even, even harder. And so we knew that we needed to um, make the odds stack a little bit more that that child would stay in our house forever. And so we looked into adoption. And in just about the time that um, Ethiopia had closed their borders for a little while. So we knew that domestic was our, was our answer. Um, we had prayed a lot about it and we knew that God was directing us in this, in this way. And so after we started the process and we were, you know, we were, um, looking at both adoptions here in Connecticut and our, um, our foster agency only, or only adopted out five kids a, um, a year. So they had told us that we needed to look at other, put our names in with other agencies in other states because the likelihood of it being a child from here was, was unlikely. And so we were also on a um, biracial African-American track adoptions down in Georgia and um, had put in information down there. And then we had also found out about an agency in Ohio that had done some special circumstances kind of adoptions. And so we had also um, looked at some of, like had, had talked with the director of there and, and possibly put our name in there for if, if things came up. And specifically how we came to our little one, Mason, was we had um, put in, we had asked our agency to send a, our life book to the agency in Ohio um, for a little girl that was going to be born with Down syndrome coming up. And we wanted, we wanted to be part of that um, showing for the birth mom. And we didn't get picked with that, but our, it led our social worker to know that we were interested and open for special needs adoptions if opportunities arose. And she had gotten contacted by another agency in Connecticut that was struggling to find families to present for a child who had been born um, with perceived fetal alcohol. And that that process actually was super short for us. Um, we needed birth mom to, to 
um, she didn't want to be part of the process because it was, I think really, it was just all around a struggle. And so we, um, we found out about a week later and it took about another week for him to come home to our house. So once, once the process got started, it was really actually kind of quick, which is helpful for the, I, I mean, I know lots of families who are, who have um, children who are still overseas that they haven't been able to bring home again, the way God works. I could have continued to wait that long. It was such, oh, the waiting is the worst. It is. It is. And I feel, I definitely feel like when the Lord is ready for you to go down a journey, it's really like his orchestration, you know? So how quickly things went once, Mm -hmm. once the ball got rolling with, with your son's adoption, that to me just kind of tells me that, you know, okay, yes, this was definitely, you know, what the path you were meant to go on. So you learned about your son's FASD prior to his coming home? So we did. We had found out that birth mom had drank. She didn't know she was pregnant. And so she had drank and she, and she was an alcoholic the, through her entire pregnancy. A little bit less in the beginning because she was so sick which now they knew was morning sickness, but she drank her entire pregnancy. And so when he was born, he had facial features. Um, He also had low muscle tone from birth. We knew, and we knew um, when they approached us about it, about fetal alcohol. And again, this is where God is amazing in knowing the perfect timing because when um, in Connecticut, you don't fill out a form like, so our Georgia agency, when we went to fill out, um, you know, what situations we were willing to do, we had filled out a form that filled out, you know, HIV, um, neuro, like cerebral palsy and all kinds of different ailments that could possibly be part of the story. Um, and we had checked yes, or we'll discuss to every single one except for fetal alcohol syndrome. And part of that was my fear um, because I had worked with someone in grad school who had fetal alcohol and the professor I had 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 adopted nine children and had previous experience and had just said how hard it can be. And then we were presented with Mason's information and it took us not even 10 minutes for both my husband and I to really feel that this is exactly where God wanted us. And so knowing that that helped a little bit and like we will talk later on about grace, like that part, knowing that I had said no to something and God was just preparing my heart to be able to say yes. Yeah. And I know that expression and I, I feel like I live the expression, you know, pray and tell God what you want and he will give you what you need. (laughs) And he must've known that we needed our children because (laughs) and I needed, I needed the time, you know, he knew that I needed time to wrestle that what I was, I was putting a dead stop to. Yeah. Absolutely. So you talked about your professional experience tying in with FASD, how in college, you you know, you had the professor who had children and one of them had an FASD. Did you have any other experience with FASD prior to being a mom? So I had counseled one other person who had perceived, we perceived as having fetal alcohol and so in, in grad school, and that was my only other experience. And what's interesting about that is I worked for my internship for a prevention of child abuse and neglect program that worked with first-time families. And so I felt like 
I should have known a little bit more about fetal alcohol because I think that would have played a really big part in supporting some of the families that I worked with in that time. Um, so I can see now where there's a there there's a really big need for other people to have more information. I worked on a maternity ward and I don't remember it ever coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And now are you, you're still practicing, obviously. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are families that have kids that either they suspect or they know that their child has an FASD or, or other brain-based diagnoses? So I find that I, the people in um, my adoption community have, we have connected with other people who have children with FASDs purely in almost accidental ways. I mean, I know they're not accidental to God, but in, for us, it feels that way. Um, and that has been nice, but in my professional life, um, I don't, I mean, I work a lot with autism. I work a lot with ADHD. I work a lot with um, learning disabilities, but for I have not worked um, professionally with anyone with FASDs because it's not as known in right. our in our area. And so yeah, I know um, a really good friend of mine worked for our Department of Children and Families. Um, and because of the knowledge she had about my son, she was able to advocate for some of the kids that had come into her space that she was working to get services for and provide and um, and go to the psychiatrists and say, I think we need to look a little bit deeper in what all of these labels might be attached to. That's great that she was able to make that connection. So you are working, you, you do work with clients that have um, either children or, or family members that do have neurodiversity. So ADHD, autism. Um, so the, you know, we talk about FASD, but we're, when we're talking about this episode and, and many of our other episodes, it, it does apply to kids that have brain differences, uh, whether it be ADHD, autism, any other types of learning disabilities. We know with FASD, though, we just know the cause mm -hmm. of those symptoms. So that's kind of where we have the differentiation. We know that the cause of, you know, our, our children's, our loved ones' differences are due to the prenatal alcohol exposure. When did you first learn about the neurobehavioral or the brain-based parenting approach in FASD? So I think that was about five years ago when I first was told about Diane Melvin's book, and trying different, not harder. I think I'm saying that wrong. Yes. Try No, try trying differently rather than harder. Yep. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, and so, and so when we, when I started reading that book and then I um, quickly found a Facebook support group that, that was supported with that, you know, that had, had that kind of thinking in a support group. And that was amazing because it helped me particularly switch at that time. Every time he was, you know, having these hard things, we were sitting on the stairs, you know, this had worked for other people with their kids who had some brain differences, not, but it was a struggle to try to get him there. And he wasn't getting anything out of it. And I was getting mad and he was getting mad. And our whole house felt like a ginormous ball of angry. And I was so thankful. And we started to feel some like <sighs> release of and relief when we started to look at it differently in the way um, that the neurobehavioral model shows um, and really trying to look at 
not necessarily punitive dam damages for what was going on, but ways in which we could support and preset and kind of curtail the environment to support the kiddo that, and, the, and the brain that we had in our family. And really accommodate, you know, right. that, that's the key word that we hear in the book and in the training and, and just our circles, our support group circles is accommodating and, and meeting your child or teen, young adult where they're at, because we know developmentally, they're not where they are chronologically. And in some areas, they may be, but mm -hmm. in other areas, they're not. So I think that's what we both love about the brain-based model, the neurobehavioral model, is that it really meets the child, your, your kid, where they're at. And you, you work on supporting the needs, but you also work on helping develop their gifts, their strengths, which uh, we both know when the Lord made our children, the areas where there were deficits from the prenatal alcohol exposure I, I call them superpowers. I, mm -hmm. I say that, you know, the Lord blessed them with these amazing gifts, you know, mm -hmm. we're friends on, on Instagram and Facebook. And I love seeing your posts about how your son is, is starting to meet some cool milestones that, yeah. you know, that, that you're uh, just celebrating. And, and we do have different ways of celebrating when you have a child that, that has an FASD, you know, our celebrations are different. But that's the beauty of this, this well, journey. I can remember that in the, in, you know, when, when my older kids, when they would walk or when they would talk or when they, you know, those were all great celebrate. And some of those got like some of the things that I celebrate now with Mason were lost in the shuffle because I didn't know they were as big of a deal as they are. Um, and especially, and I know the one we're talking about is like, he played on his own for the first time with toys, with no one around him. That and is not, huge. And not instigated. Like it wasn't, I preset him and we were all like, so it was, it for me was that amazing of like, <gasps> all oh, this hard means sometimes there are going to be times when he can, he can, yes. I get to see those benefits on the other end. And as well as like, I know, um, particularly, you know, when Mason, when we found out Mason was going to come home to our house, um, we had to change our birth, our home study within the five days to critique and curtail to the, um, to a special needs child. And so we did, we had to do a lot of research. We had to show the supports we had in our area. We had to read a book. We had all of these things that we had to do really quickly. And sleep was one of those things that it said, this is going to happen and it's going to be terrible. And, you know, sleeping, um, they'll be rigid and they, which Mason was never, he slept fantastic for the first eight months of his life. And what we didn't know then that we found out later was that he was really overstimulated and he just shut down and his way yes. of coping was sleeping. And so yes. we had an amazing sleeper for eight months. And then it was like a switch flipped and he yes. <laughs> went to the other end. And I can remember in those hard times saying to myself, when he's eight years old, he'll be sleeping in his own bed. When he's uh, in his own room and in his own bed and in his own space, and it'll be all fine. So I just need to keep making, well, Mason's nine and he still sleeps in our room. He is not developmentally ready to sleep in his own room yet. And he will have moments. So he's had a day or two. And in fact, one time when we had a certain medication that he was on, he slept almost an entire week in that room. Um, but he, for the most part, fear and anxiety take over a large part, especially at night. And he yes. just cannot handle it. And so I think when we, you know, when we specifically talk about the brain-based and the gray-based, that is a great, that is a space where it really meets because people have a lot of opinions about where your children sleep. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. And how they sleep too. Uh-huh. Our son sleeps with the lights on because mm-hmm. that that's just how, you know, like you said, sensory wise, having total darkness is, is just too much. So we accommodated because, you know, at first he was just sleeping with all these lights on. And, and so we actually got him like some Christmas lights. Yeah. And, you know, so we made the accommodation, but it took a long time to do that. And I laugh when you say a switch went on because our son's switch went on around 18 months, just before 18 months, where literally almost a whole year, none of us got any sleep. We were lucky to get a few hours a night because he was just, like you said, having just sensory overload and Mm -hmm. he was attaching sleep with you know, scary, I'm going to hear loud noises or anything like that. So we saw a wonderful psychologist at the time who told us you have to rebuild that attachment, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, you had it before. And for about a year, my husband and I, we started with air mattresses in his bedroom and we would just slowly, one of us would come out and the other one would come out and yeah, it's, it's hard and it's a different kind of hard and exactly what you said, you know, you have friends and relatives and and people that will tell you, oh, they should be doing this and that. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a very isolating parenting journey. Yeah. And, but when we think about Jesus and how isolating his journey became because he came to save us and basically the world shunned him. And mm-hmm. we learned that this journey, you know, this, this hard journey of parenting a child with an FASD is isolating, but it's teaching us so much about Christ, how to live like Christ and how to live for Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm just so happy that we're having this conversation because there are so many overlaps. So let's talk about that first one, how others perceive our families. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, God in his great timing and scaffolding, my oldest son um, has ADHD. And one of the things that I had to learn in parenting him was um, reminding myself that God gave me this child to parent this child. My job was not to worry about the world's perception about my parenting parenting this child. And so I can remember we went to a library. Now, um, body control, impulse control, um, and volume level are all really hard in a library. And my goal was for us to have a good experience with impulse control and body control. I wasn't worrying about his volume because we were in a kid's section in the library. And a lady had said, shh, And normally when I would hear that, that would make me embarrassed and angry. And then, so I would react in an embarrassed, angry way towards my child. And I did not. And in that moment, I didn't. And I really felt like that was a turning point for me to be able to say, I don't, I need to ignore that because it wasn't, there was nobody else in the children's section. Um, It was somebody who had a a rule that did not apply to my child or my situation. And so God in that gave me the grace to be able to let that one roll off um, because that's not my typical nature. And it let me, it let me roll, let that roll off and I could continue to parent my child the way I knew he needed to be parented. And so that fast forward, you know, 
10 years later with the way in which um, Mason functions and his ability and um, desire to say hi to everybody and, and talk with other people and be just very people oriented. But then also times he gets overwhelmed and he stands back. And I, I grew up in San Diego, California, where everybody's happy and friendly and says hello to everybody. We now live in New England. They don't do that here. But Mason has a, a time where he wants to say hi to people and they'll ignore him or be surprised. And then there's other times, like especially little old ladies, they love that he'll say hi and talk to them and they'll ask him questions. I think, um, but also on the opposite end of that, he really has times where his brain shuts down and he can't respond to someone's question. Right. And the, the parenting part of what other people see is, well, your child's not going to say thank you. Well, your child's not going to, you know, respond to my question. Um, and I, again, would take that as shame or that I had done a bad job or embarrassment. And I have, um, again, through God's grace, been able to say, nope, this is not, I am parenting this child for God. Like this yes. is, he gave me this gift and this is what, this is the way my life is going to be. And I have to shh the noise that's around us. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's such a wonderful analogy and such a wonderful story demonstrating how we can't let the people around us shape how we parent our children. And not only that, but affect us too, you know, mm -hmm. because there, there are so many factors that try to, they're like the fiery darts, you know, that, that mm -hmm. just try to get through us and, and we need to, you know, stay not only in prayer, but just remind ourselves that we are blessed. You know, mm. we, we are blessed so much. So let's talk about, let's talk more about your faith in this journey. You and I have shared that we, I know you feel this way. I feel this way. We could not do this journey without God. We could mm -hmm. not do this journey without Jesus. How has your faith brought you through, particularly with the challenges that come along being a parent of a child with an FASD? So prayer, prayer, <laughs> prayer, um, we often, uh, you know, there's so much power in the name of Jesus. And there are times even today in a meltdown where I am preparing to, to support my child in this. And my first prayer is Jesus. Like I don't even sometimes get anything else out yes. besides Jesus. Yes. And so I like relying on his strength, relying on the fact that, um, I know that Mason was born to be in our family. And I know that's not the case for everybody's story, right. but there's, there's a pieces and parts of our story that, that very much show to where that this was already preordained by God. Yeah. And yes. so it, it, having that in my brain allows me a little bit more flexibility um, in my thinking to be able to go into those, those moments that are really hard, knowing that God's already seen this. He knows yes. what the story is. He knows how this will end. And my job in that is to, to trust and rely on him. And so um, really being confident that God will equip, equip me um, if I'm willing to walk <laughs> yes. away. <laughs> or, or if we feel, you know, for me, and I, 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 when you say that about just saying Jesus, that's some days I feel like, especially when it's really hard and I'm just mm -hmm. sobbing and just feeling broken, you know, all I can do is just call his name because I, but I know he knows what I'm, I'm praying for that what I'm asking about. We also know that he is shaping us. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of the old me was broken mm. and, and needed to be broken. Mm. 
mm-hmm. so that he could fill in where the light, where his, you know, where God's light, where Jesus's light is inside me. And, you know, a really big part of that was when we first, you know, received our son's diagnosis, um, three years ago. And, and our journeys are, are different in that you went into parenting your son, knowing, you know, we went into parenting our son, knowing that he had what we were told at the time, medical needs, which Mm -hmm. turned out to be related to, you know, his FASD. So I feel like when we are, you know, just in our darkest you know, Valley that just by calling out to him that he knows what the need is and he will fill it. And, and even just the Lord is just so good in that not only will he fill the need, but it'll exponentially overflow and, you know, and we're able to bless others like today. I mean, you know, who would have thought like three years ago, I'd be talking to a friend about, you know, our children and, and how we can, hopefully provide hope to to others who are listening, who are going through this hard. Well, and I can remember even, you know, a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. So I was in a space where I had woken up and I, the day before had just broken me. It had just wrecked me. And I remember laying in bed thinking, Lord, I do not want to do this again. You know, like I I don't want to do the day again. Please don't make me have to get up. And, And just praying that he would be infused in my day. And I I needed that reminder as because we have come so far and knowing and being in the midst of that brokenness in those times, like that, um, like the Bible verse I shared with, I said earlier of the, um, of Romans, like that, that perseverance creates character and that character creates hope. And that was really evident in that, in that time. And I mean, it was a good month time of, we were having such a growing time. Um, for him. And it was such a struggle and knowing that um, he, God was going to provide that strength. Now it was not easy for me in that moment or in that morning to get up and put one foot in front of the other and um, share my, you know, all of my love and all of myself with all of my kids that day, but particularly the hard ones. And so I, I really feel like that was the space in which I needed. I relied very strongly on my faith to get me through each day because otherwise uh, I ain't, I ain't doing this. No. <laughs> I can't do it. And I've shared with my other mama friends that I, I couldn't do this without Jesus. I could mm-hmm. not do this without the Lord. I, and our family would not be our family without the Lord. And that's the beauty of it. You know, not only can I not do it without him, but I wouldn't have the family I have without him. Both of my children are miracles and, and my husband and I know that, you know, and I also feel like this journey, I can see where it breaks families. It Mm. really does, especially families that don't have that foundation either in faith or being able to support each other. I feel like, you know, there've been some close calls where my husband and I are just like, not so much, we can't do, you know, our marriage anymore, but how are we going to do, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this, and like you said, just waking up in the morning, how can I do this? And just giving it to the Lord, you know, and, and just knowing that for me, realizing, and, and I learned, I realized this when we had an especially dark time with our son, that ultimately our, our children belong to the Lord Mm -hmm. and we're just blessed, you know, while we're on earth to be their mamas and daddies, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that he has trusted us with our children. So reminding myself of that and, you know, when it's really hard and when I'm like, 
I don't know what to do. And just saying, okay, I'm just going to give him to you and, and, Mm -hmm. and pray and pray for discernment and being able to just retreat for me, especially in the past few years, you know, just retreating in God's word and retreating Mm -hmm. and, in and spending time with him and in in the moments that I can, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I feel like I have an ongoing conversation with the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, me too. That's how I get through the day, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but, you know, taking time, usually morning is a good time, but usually evening is, is where I really just try to retreat and have, have solace and, and be in God's word and, and in prayer. Um, well, and so- I think like you said before about having friends as well as yes. like, I know I have a handful of friends that I can say, just please pray for me. I can shoot out a, a text that just says, please pray. And I know that as soon as they get that text, they're praying for me and they're praying for my family and they're praying for whatever situation is happening at that time. And that is oftentimes a very big support for me as well of knowing I've got my people. And, you know, I read a statistic, I'm probably year, uh, three, four years ago now, but um, 70 to 75% of special needs parents end in divorce, their marriages end in divorce. And one, there's some, you know, factors around that, both with just the stress that they go through on an everyday and battling a system and battling each other and battling other people's opinions and thoughts. And, and, but there's also something to knowing that once they separate, they both get a break. At some point, there's a break back and forth, not all the time, because I know that, but that was one of the reasons of thinking about that, why um, the divorce rate was so high in those times, because this can be a draining, unending, difficult time. But that's where that piece part, uh, that part about hope comes back in of like, if you don't have Jesus, I don't know where there's hope. Same thing as a therapist. I'm a Christian therapist and I work in from a faith-based standpoint because I can't offer that. That hope to other people without the hope of Jesus. I don't have it. I don't, I, you know, there's all great techniques all over the world, like, and brilliant people who have come up with great things, but ultimately it still stands in the only hope I have. And the only hope I have to offer is from Jesus. Yes. And that's why we're airing this episode in December, because we know that December and the Advent season Mm -hmm. is a celebration of our Lord and Savior coming to earth to die for us and to die for our sins. And we know that that is just the ultimate gift and Mm -hmm. having Christ be the focus of our family. And I know for your family and Mm -hmm. having grace infused in our parenting and having grace be the basis of our parenting, as well as the brain-based approaches and and how they overlap. Those are all gifts. They Mm. really are. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this, because I really feel like both grace-based parenting and brain-based parenting are gifts that overlap each other. And, and we can, we're blessed with them. You know, when we parent a child, whether they have an FASD or another brain-based diagnosis. So let's start with grace-based parenting and let's talk about grace-based parenting and how that is so important in our journeys. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, for me, what stands out the most is without, without grace, we have grudges. We hold, wake up each day and we remember and hold on to all of the icky that happened before, even, you know, even in moment to moment and holding in that icky and being able to, um, I don't parent well from a grudge. I don't 
I don't do anything well from a grudge. I'm not a great friend with a grudge. I'm not a great wife with a grudge. And so really, I think having that grace be the major filter in which I look through um, life with is one of the ways in which I can function and show Jesus's love every day to everybody, but particularly my kids. Um, my kids are with me all the time. And so they have the chances to see where I need to ask for God's grace and forgiveness and love and support, but they also, I also need to offer that to them. And so with grace allows me to let go of some of those grudges and find gratitude and um, greatness and all the G words that are fabulous that can go in that long list. But I think also it's hard to meet our kiddos needs without the ability to have grace because my son, um, if he is struggling with something that has been asked or he perceives as required of him, the first part that he usually goes to is the verbal onslaught of terrible things of how I'm a terrible mom, I'm a freak, all of the words that he's heard that sound remotely terrible. If I let those pocket into my soul, I cannot give him what he needs, which is a calm mom who is showing love, who is not going to be reactatory. And I can't do that if I'm standing in this place of holding a grudge of, well, you didn't say this, so I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Or you, you call me a mean mom, fine, then I'm not doing anything. I'm out. I'm all, I'm all done. No, I want to preface that with, I'm not that mom. I'm not, I'm not the grace-filled mom hundred percent of the time. I even would struggle to say 50% of the time, but I want to say, I want to give myself a little, a little grace and say maybe a little bit more than 50. But I know that that's one of the struggles as a mom of being able to, to let go of some of those big things that have come in. And, you know, the definition of grace is free and unmerited mercy, unearned mercy that God gave to humanity. And I want to show that to my kids. And in a glorious, fabulous world where I've had a ton of self-care and I am, um, all the things around me are easy and all my other kids have things that are met. I can give that freely, but it is so good for me to feel the grace that God gives me, the unmerited, un, um, unearned grace that I can then try to pass on to my kids. So I think it's very important when we're thinking about parenting our kiddos and just um, thinking about their everyday and the nuances of who they are, that we lo we're looking through a place of that, um, that we can show God's love through the way that we respond to our kids. Amen. Oh, I love that. And also I've learned through grace-based parenting that I'm a servant, you know, mm -hmm. and, and being a mom, you, you're serving your family, you're serving the Lord and serving your family. And that, like you said, you know, you got, you take a lot of the eye out of the picture and you put more of the family, the, we, the, the, they, you know, and, and that is just such a reminder of the amazing grace that the Lord has given us. You know, I know in my heart that, when it gets hard and when it gets ugly and when, you know, you have no, I haven't taken care of myself or, you know, it's just been one of those days. I know that that's where I really just have to hold on to that grace that the Lord has given me so that I can in turn show that to, you know, my, my son, you know, my family. So that's just a wonderful point. And I love that. Can you say that again? Having grace, say that. Oh, <laughs> Without grace, you hold the grudges and I need, I need grace 
to be able to find gratitude, to be able to find um, the, the greatness in everything that is, that could be in front of me. And with it, yeah, without I love grace, that. I do, oh, that's not a fun thing. Let's talk about grace-based parenting and brain-based parenting. When you look at our child's, um, our children's diagnoses through the brain-based parenting strategies, you meet them where they're at. You provide accommodations. You recognize that it's a brain-based diagnosis. What they're presenting to you is not willful bad behaviors, but it's a matter of their brain not being able to either accomplish something or process something, or even, you know, the emotional thermostat you and I have talked about in the past, that emotional thermostat is so high and they're sensing excitement as anger or hostility. Mm -hmm. So in what ways do you think grace-based parenting and and brain-based parenting or neural behavioral parenting strategies are similar? So I, um, I, I did the facet, facet training about two years ago, and I can remember thinking a similar thing. And there were, there were um, quite a few believers in my group um, that, you know, we got to have conversations about, about pretty much this, this exact thing. And, and I know for me, two of the biggest things that stand out are um, the looking, they both look at this can't versus won't what does my child need? What grace do I need to extend? What do they need um, with the can't versus won't and shifting our thinking in that Um, as well as believing the best about your child that in this time they want to do the right thing. Um, And I know my mom and I were actually just talking about this today when I was taking her to a a doctor's appointment about um, Mason is one of the sweetest, most giving children um, and is loving and just kind of um, sees all of the things that are important to other people and wants to give that to them. Um, And he has this ability to just be extra extra cuddly and all the things that he's not when he is in um, just a space of complete and utter meltdown mode because the world around him makes no sense and when in those moments that the world makes no sense he's scared he is he is looking for safety and that comes out for him as fighting. He is definitely a kiddo who is going to, you know, fight hard. And so when I can recognize that just as I would in the neurobehavioral model of like what around him, what do I need to accommodate? What do I need to, um, what do I need to change? What situations do I need to get out of? What And the grace-based parenting of, of really looking at that of like, there is a need that I am, that God has equipped me to give my child that I need to, I need to address and I need to um, support at this time. And so both of those are going to the child, not in punitive ways, but in ways of like, what, what do me thinking brain ways, what does this brain need? And what is, what does this heart and soul need at this moment? And oftentimes it needs me to be quiet and still and sit on the floor and open arms and let him have some of his um, loud words or things that are, you know, that he, he says that are not nice to allow him to be able to hear or even see or perceive my desire to support him. And Michelle, you're saying that reminds me of one of my favorite scriptures that I have. Uh, it used to be mounted over our fireplace and, and now it's mounted. Um, it's, a, it's framed as soon as you walk in our door. 
and it's Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. And I strategically have that scripture in like the most central place in our house to remind me, you know, visually remind me that in all those times where I need the Lord to fight for me, I need to be still and listen for him and to be quiet. So I love that you're saying that because it's true. So often when our kids get louder or having meltdowns or just needing something, we need to be still and, and mm-hmm. to listen and to pray for what they need from us. I love that. Well, and you- I think it's funny because that's, the, you know, that, that <laughs> the be still and know I am God verse is so yes. short and yes. it's one of the hardest ones in the Bible for yes. me to adhere to because mm-hmm. I'm not a still person. Um, and God knows that about my spirit, but he also knows that that is the, like you said about having your time and your and settling and being still and being with the Lord is the time that you, the way you fill up the way you are ready and prepared to handle your day. I think that's similarly to what you said about, um, having that strategic Bible verse about the Lord fighting for you in this place as you need to see it. I yes. have similar things of, of having things up. I have Bible verses up all over my house in nice little signs and whatever. But I also, at times when I'm really struggling, I write them on my hand. I put a sticky note on the mirror. I put them in my car, just places that I know that I'm going to, the Lord will direct me. The other thing I love is that is the, the music that will pop into my head at um, just the right time, you know, the, uh, the line of a song that, um, just speaks of his love or speaks of his strength or speaks directly to me and my need for him, but also his desire to be with me in that. Ah, I love that. And how can we use both parenting strategies when we're raising and working with our kids or teens or adults that have an FASD or other brain-based diagnoses? How can, how can we utilize both strategies in our parenting toolbox? Well, I think just like the way we think about God, that about the way he has equipped our journey, that it was not by chance. It was not by um, accident that we are parenting the kids that we are parenting. And so if you start your brain Um, process each morning for yourself, knowing that God has walked you this far in this journey. He is not going to let you fall now. I think it allows you that to start the filter of grace, start that filter space of like, I'm going to look through this with my grace lens. I think the knowledge piece of all that we've learned in the facet part of, and with the neurobehavioral model and thinking about Um, and being able to step back from situations and journal and have that be still time where you can process and ponder the children that you have and the needs that they have and being able to look through and break out, you know, what was, what was this brain, um, what was this brain task that my child couldn't do? Cause he's not there yet. How can I accommodate that brain structure? And the grace part, I think, and this is this is where I see it in my parenting particularly, is letting go of some of the things that I held as core values, things like being on time, things like um, speaking kindly to others always, no matter what, um, things like I have had to look at that both from the neurobehavioral um, model and the, the core values that he pushes when some of those things go awry. 
And as well as that grace place of, am I honoring God in the things that um, I'm teaching my child and are the things I need to let go of, the things that I have put into core values, not necessarily core values that God holds to the standard that I am holding them at. Does it make parenting a whole lot easier? It makes living a whole lot easier when I can look at, maybe I have made this more important than it is to God. Yes. Yes. And letting go of expectations too. Mm, And we often come to parenting with expectations, whether they be from, you know, the way we were raised or the way others tell us. And, and we need to just let those go. And just really, like you said, put, I love that put on not only your brain based lens, but your grace lens, you know, and how you're going to start the day and how you're going to complete the day. This has been such a gift of a conversation. I love talking with you, Michelle. We need to talk more often. (laughs) So Michelle, how can folks get in touch with you? I know you have a website. Yes, my website is Michelle Catania, C-A-T-A-N-I-A-L-M-F-T.com. And on there, there's a form that like you can just click in and and send me a, a message through there. It's super easy. Terrific. So I love to end... FASD Hope, our episodes on what I call a hope takeaway, which is, you know, a dose of hope that parents and caregivers, educators, relatives, whoever's listening to us, hope that they can take away from our conversation and for their journey. Um, I think particularly when we were talking about the grace part, we need to extend grace to ourselves as well. So uh, we need to, um, we need to remember that when we sin, when we fall short, we go to God with that and our sins are as far east as from the west. So God doesn't look at us um, through that lens of what we've done wrong or how terrible we've been. And we are working to do similar things with our kids. And so remembering that same grace is extended to us as well. And so when we can hold on to the grace that God has given us, I think it's easier to help extend that grace to our kiddos. Amen. Michelle, it's been awesome having you on FASD Hope. Thank you again for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Take care and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week and remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.